ask me why I'm always teasing you. You hate to have me call you pretty baby. Whether you like it or not, there's going to be a big change around here, and it starts tonight. Hello and welcome to a second episode of uh, the Queens and Rebels podcast, which is a woman's history podcast, and I am so excited to do this. I can't believe people actually listened uh, to my very first episode. Thank you, everyone, who listened and um, who provided feedback. I am so excited to start part two of the Queens of Egypt. I've got a lot of notes to get through, so put your seatbelt on because it's gonna be a wild ride. I just had to pause and let my cat in. I'm trying to um, record from my closet for better sound quality and I closed the door, of course, so he didn't like that. He started scratching. I guess I have a little manager overlooking what I'm doing right now. If you hear any rustling in the background, that would be my cat trying uh, to find the spot to sleep. Okay, anyways, back to what I was saying. Um, There are a couple um, of things I noted from my first episode when I was um, editing, which I was cringing so hard, (laughs) the sound of my own voice. Yeah, uh, so the first uh, thing I noted, I say uh, a lot and I guess it's like a nervous tick. I'm trying to do it less now because it was so hard to edit all of it out. I don't think I got all of it but I think I've edited out like over 50 in um, sounds of me just going uh and I've already noticed I'm doing it again. And another thing I noticed is uh I uh, was mispronouncing the word woman as in plural and a woman, which is like one. I would uh, mispronounce that, I guess, because of nervousness. So I will try to do a better job. Um, Other than that, I'm just going to roll with it and improve as I go. So if you have anything to add or if you want to see something let me know um i now have an instagram which is a q and r pod i believe um let me double check because my memory is terrible and i just don't remember because i know i mentioned i was going to make one but then i completely forgot to let everyone know what it is yes so it's letter q a n d r pod P-O-D. So please follow me if you want to see any updates on what I'm doing and uh, if you want to see some images uh, that go along with the women I'm talking about. So without further ado, let, let's start with another uh, queen of Egypt, Hatshepsut. She is one of those well-known famous women. Hatshepsut's rise to power happened during the 18th dynasty. She was very different from previously confirmed female rulers who ruled by filling a power vacuum created by a lack of a male heir. And uh, I am just going to give a little bit of an overview of uh, women that have ruled unofficially before Hatshepsut because they did kind of pave a path 
for her to become pharaoh <clears throat> and eventually i do want to make another episode about the female power in ancient egypt and this one will probably talk about women that uh, ruled unofficially that did not have an official title as king which there were a lot of formidable women to talk about but this particular topic is about women that were kings and i know the very first ruler uh, we mentioned was not king she was a regent a queen but she was the first recorded one, so um, I did decide to include her in this podcast. But yes, back to the woman that arguably paid the path of acceptance of Hatshepsut's reign. So after Neferusubek's death, which brought an end to the 12th uh, dynasty, a new ruling family has chosen the th- city of Thebes as their power base. So we left off the first episode of Neferusubek being a pharaoh and bringing a dynasty to an end because there was no male heir to follow it up. So Thebes would eventually be the city where a powerful 17th dynasty matriarch, Tetisheri, would rule alongside her much less known husband. So she kind of came in, overshadowed her husband, and uh, was the bright shining star we all needed, okay? Although she did not have an official title as king, Tetisheri has been greatly influential and politically active. She has given birth to King Sekinendre, I believe. It's S-E-Q-E-N-E-N-R-E. Sekinandre Tao, and Ahotep, who later became the great royal wife to the king. So like her mother, Ahotep was also active in politics. When her husband um, slash brother was away on war campaigns, she ruled in the capital in his stead. She has been remembered as a formidable and capable military and political leader, and this was noted in her burial place. So King Sekinendra Tao, Ahotep's husband, did not rule for long, passing away from an axe wound to his skull. The rule was passed on to his and Ahotep's children, King Ahmos and Queen Ahmes Nefertari. Ahmos did not inherit the power directly, but it was transferred to him from his brother, King Kamos on the grounds of Kamos's sterility. So this began the 18th dynasty, uh, which Hatshepsut would eventually rule. So once again, there is this powerful 17th dynasty queen. One of her sons becomes the ruler, but he is sterile. So what happens is his power is then transferred to the other brother. And it starts a new dynasty. So just like the 17th dynasty. And here I'm going a little in a little bit of a background to give you an idea of what kind of environment Hatshepsut would have experienced during her lifetime. So just like the 17th dynasty before it, the 18th dynasty would be facing foreign Hyksos kings ruling in the north. As you remember, Egypt went into a period of decline due to climate change, and this fragmented the land 
and northern Hyksos kings ended up invading northern Egypt. They also allied them aligned themselves with Nubian kings to the south of Egypt, and this created a formidable threat. And also, for the first time, Egypt was fragmented and being partially ruled by foreigners. So after King Ahmos, the guy that started the 18th dynasty, suddenly passed away, he left a young boy prince, Amenhotep I, to inherit the throne. This left Ahmes Nefretari, who was Ahmose's wife, a regent, um, till the boy reached maturity. And upon reaching maturity, Amenhotep I has not been able to produce an heir. So once again, over and over, we see the same problem. It's not so much rebellions or foreign invasions as the fact that these dynasties collapse or these crises of successions happen because of inbreeding and an ability to produce an heir. And one thing to add, Ahmes Nefertari was another uh, powerful female politician who did not have an official kingly title, but she continued to be depicted, depicted with her son, even after he gained maturity, which was unusual. This was because, no doubt, she exercised a lot of influence in his decision-making. Back to the succession crisis, to solve the problem of the next successor, a guy called Tutmos was chosen as the next king, later becoming Tutmos I, and his name means born of the god Toth, Toth is the god of wisdom, writing, magic, and judgment of the dead. So Tutmos I, before becoming pharaoh, most likely uh, was related to the royal family, perhaps being Amenhotep's first cousin. We all know how they like to centralize the rule in the family, so it's highly unlikely he was an outsider. So prior to becoming the king, he likely served as the general in the war against the Hyksos kings. His previous military experience would come in handy as he extended the Egyptian border, gaining control over gold-producing provinces of Nubia and Kush. This granted Egypt a flow of income it has not experienced in a while. So Egypt is once again becoming a very wealthy country. And Tutmos I has taken a princess named Ahmes as his higher-ranking royal wife, most likely due to her being related to the royal family. This union produced the eldest daughter, Hatshepsut. So here uh, we see Hatshepsut appear on the scene. Hatshepsut's direct connection to the divine royal bloodline would have placed her at a higher status than other numerous half-siblings, which we know were produced by other harem women. And to further elevate her social standing, she was being granted the role as Egypt's highest priestess, the holy wife of God, Amun. Amun was the patron deity of Thebes, a creator and fertility god. So she would have inherited this title of fairly early on and would have conducted rituals to help God the Moon's 
morning rebirth, thus maintaining the order of the universe. In pious Egyptian minds, she performed an extremely important role, helping the sunrise, essentially. And on top of her being royal, this um, elevated her above any other children, uh, maybe except a direct male heir that that the pharaoh might have produced. Hatshepsut's position also granted her great material wealth as her uh, gig as a priestess also came with income-producing land. This made her a wealthy and independent woman because she was able to own her own palaces and these income-producing lands. Besides being wealthy and wielding ideological power, Hatshepsut also was well educated and politically connected since she had connections to the very top of religious leaders, but she was also the king's daughter, so she had political connections. She would have represented the royal family in the capital of Thebes. While her father was away on military campaigns in Nubia, Libya, or Levant, or while he was visiting other urban centers of Memphis or Helios, as much as um, you know, she was an independent woman who was trusted with making decisions, she was still seen as an extension of, of patriarchal power, and uh, she was still seen as a means to strengthen patriarchal power. Um, so as a woman, she did not pose a threat to male rule, and also she did not uh, yet produce a male heir, she had no one to promote as next to, in line to the throne. She had a number of high-ranking brothers to take over the throne as well, so um, she wasn't seen as a threat. And her position served as a reflection of her father's power, strengthening his own influence. As I said, even though she was granted all these high roles t- titles, it was because she was not seen as a threat to her father's rule, but rather as a means to glorify it. So the transfer of power in Egypt was very straightforward. They would go to a chosen male heir. But as we all know, life can be unpredictable. So what happened was all these male heirs died So all these male heirs basically started passing away, all these high-ranking chosen princes. Uh, This resulted in attempts of all mothers with a male son um, to pander for their son to become as um, their next heir. But King Tutmos I, um, after 10 years of rule, has passed away suddenly and has not named an heir. After uh, her father passes away, because a lot of her power was coming from an extension of her father, um, this diminished Hatshepsut's political standing, and she would have to link herself to a king by marriage, which was most likely what she was groomed for as the highest-born daughter of a king anyways. She did eventually marry Tutmos II, um, who was chosen to rule, and he was a very sickly boy. This is actually confirmed by anthropological examinations of his mommy. To no one's surprise, 
He passed away just three years after uh, his reign. This meant, even though he did have offspring, none of them were old enough uh, to be crowned king. Just to note, Hatshepsut did have a child with him, but it was a daughter, so it would not be her child who would be directly uh, seen as the next logical ruler. Blah, blah, blah. He, um, yes, so his offspring was too young to rule. And since an heir was not named, an oracle of Gadamun um, would have performed a ceremony to see who would supposedly be chosen by the gods. Now, not much known is about this um, ceremony and how the oracle came to a conclusion of who will be king. Two assumptions are it's either the oracle would have been high out of hers or his mind um, on some kind of psychedelics um, and uh, the conclusion would seem as um, as divine or this was politically motivated and a bunch of high-ranking priests would get together and decide who the best candidate was. For whatever reason, the Third. Uh, was chosen, and uh, this was perhaps to avoid another sterile and inbred king, because the Third was the son of an outsider, of a common and influential woman. So the natural assumption would be, as based on previous precedent, that uh, the mother uh, would then rule on behalf of the of the child until he reached adulthood. But in an unprecedented move, Hatshepsut made a bid for power. So she was unusual on how she came to grab power because she was not a regent. She was not closing out a dynasty. And what's more unusual is that there was a boy prince chosen to rule, but she still decided to go for it. And the reason is, um, well, firstly... Egypt was starting to recover from a period of decline. The harvest uh, was once again fruitful. Successful military campaigns have produced tribute and a flow of resources, and the trade routes were now open. And it was in everyone's best interest to keep the good times going by securing a capable and experienced leader. Hatshepsut would have been desired for that leader position because she has had experience as a high-ranking priestess, but also as her father's representative. Uh, Most likely, she would have taken an active decision-making role uh, as a royal wife uh, because the husband that passed away did not have a lot of experience. Tutmosis III's low-ranking and uneducated mother was not seen as a viable candidate to rule. And it's not far-fetched uh, to speculate that perhaps the Third was chosen for that very reason, because he opened the door for Hatshepsut to become regent. Um, otherwise, if he had an influential mother from a powerful family, that mother would have been the regent without question. So Hatshepsut became regent with the support of the elites. Um, But despite being supported um, by the elites, uh, she was at a disadvantage because the very same elites knew she needed their support and attempted to take more power and influence from the royal 
family. So basically, they knew about them. She could not um, rule because it was so unprecedented for her to become regent in the first place. And I'm assuming Tutmos the third's uh, maternal family would have still made some kind of power move to be granted regency over him. Hatshepsut was caught in a balancing act. She was preserving power for her nephew, and she was also holding on to her priestess title for her daughter, a duty which she was expected to give up in favor of the king's mother. So right away we see she's trying to set up her daughter, um, perhaps with the same opportunity, the same powerful beginnings as she had um, as a as a great priestess of Gadamun. Well, she she's also uh, most likely planning for her daughter to marry the king and become his great royal wife, which would also afford her a lot of influence. So at this point, her in her rule, she was a placeholder for the power transfer to occur. Because the elites have accumulated a lot of financial gain under her rule, they wanted to keep um, their position and wanted to solidify her power. So what happened is she was in a balancing act trying to retain her power as a regent, but also trying to appease elites because she knew she needed their support so they were able to benefit greatly financially in her efforts to keep them happy her chapsuit be very generous to the elites and they did not want that to stop so in first five years of her role as a regent a propaganda campaign began to solidify her power Two giant 10-story obelisks were carved showing Hatshepsut as the wife of Amun. They referred to her as the one whom Ra has given kinship. She was not an overtly called king because that was not yet possible, but <clears throat> anyone who passed the obelisks were reminded that she was already doing the king's job. A series of images followed, Hatshepsut standing directly in the front of Temple. Div- Sorry, my phone just um, decided to turn on for some reason, even though I um, did not request for Siri. Um, blah, 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 what was I talking about? Okay, so a series of images followed. Hatshepsut standing directly in front of temple divinities, performing kingly rites and wearing king's headgear. In an unprecedented move, and I cannot stress this enough, uh, how unusual this was, at the public religious festival, the Oracle of Amun proclaimed Hatshepsut as his chosen ruler, making her power official. So by proclaiming Hatshepsut as divine chosen ruler, her, her nephew's royal title was den- demoted and she was the official co-ruler. Also, she had the most authority. In her first de- depiction as king. She is shown in a tight-fitting dress with a masculine short wig and two ostrich feathers atop a ram's horns, which was a very masculine symbol. Once again, we see this mix of masculine and feminine, even though she's not hiding the fact that she's a woman. To be more accepted in her people's eyes, she has to incorporate these masculine elements, which um, I guess is not that different from 
what women, uh, what female leaders are expected to do these days, because still, um, I cannot believe, you know, thousands of years later, there's questions about women being too weak or maybe too emotional to be leaders. But back to my notes, um, she knew it would be ill-received for a woman to openly claim her own ambition. So she claimed she took on kinship only because her godly father, Amun, has ordered it, and as a pious woman, she had no choice but accept. So she was very good at using religion to her advantage. She knew how to shape her religious authority to her advantage, and rejecting her claim would have been rejecting the divine will, so basically nobody could protest the fact that she became a, a co-regent because it was, sorry, she became a co-ruler because it was divine will and who would speak against the gods. So in a different pair of obelisks, a text reads, He who hears it will not say, it is a lie, for I have said, rather say, how like her it is, she is devoted to her father. The god knew it in me. Amun, lord of the thrones, of the two lands, he caused that I rule the black and the red lands as reward. No one rebels against me in all lands. What it's basically saying is what I was talking about before, which she took this authority because the gods commanded it and no one dares to rebel against her. And furthermore, she has claimed that she has direct communication with the gods. And I quote, I have not been forgetful of any project he, meaning Amun, has decreed. For my majesty knows he is divine and I have done it by his command. He is the one who guides me. I could not have imagined the work without his acting. He is the one who gives the directions. Hatshepsut's uh, grasp on power was solidified by her ability to manipulate religion and control the priests. If she ever made a big move, her priests would follow it up with godly revelations. Later on, um, this strategy was actually used by a lot of famous leaders uh, well into modern history. She, um, she had a great understanding on how to manipulate religion, but she also had a great understanding of patriarchal power dynamics. She understood that the masculine lineage transfer would have been expected and used her connections to her dead husband to prop up her son so she did not dare and dispose of the boy, if you will, to rule on her own. Just like she understood she needed to connect herself to her father after claiming power, probably based on the Ferusubek, and she has also deified her father. Uh, Hatshepsut would have looked towards her daughter Nefrur, as a way to continue her legacy, Hatshepsut's position as a god's wife Amun, sorry, a god's wife of Amun, launched her into power and was transferred to Nefrur. Nefrur most likely was Tutmosis III's royal wife, uh, but no direct evidence points to their marriage. Um, and this is due to uh, later efforts to erase Nefrur's from existence, and we will go into it 
further, but this makes sense for Nefur to be the great royal wife since she was the highest ranking female uh, for him to marry. She had direct connection to um, his father and also the the co-ruler, the, the current pharaoh. So there are instances where Nefrur appears alone on monuments, representing herself in important and unprecedented terms for a royal wife or a priestess, which leads people to believe she did exercise a lot of power. But next to nothing is known about Nefrul due to um, incredible efforts to erase her a name from history, as I mentioned. And what's evident from, from the fact that people went to such lengths to erase her was that she upset the patriarchal power structure in such a profound way that it warranted this extreme reaction. But back to Hatshepsut, eventually Hatshepsut was faced with a new challenge. She was growing older while her cocaine was growing into adulthood. And as Tutmos got older, her image became more masculine. And only in textual descriptions um, she would be identified as a female. So there is this need for her as a female uh, to to masculinize herself in order to be taken more seriously since the boy king is no longer a boy and he be expected uh, to grab more power. Um, but she still maintained precedence over her um, uh, now adult nephew this is depicted in processions and religious rituals. Also politically, uh, she shored up a lot of support from the elites by creating new jobs to sell for influence and support. She also constantly reminded people of her power by erecting new temples, statues, and reliefs. Her Temple of the Million Years was an homage to her achievements. Uh, here she published the story of her how God Amun impregnated her mother with his divine essence. Also, her, her building these temples and, and monuments uh, created jobs, which I'm sure uh, helped her be popular with the people. All this power maintenance required a tremendous amount of money. Um, she had elites to bribe, she had propaganda to build, which was not just the newspaper, you had to erect um, a giant monument in order for people to see it. She did not shy away f f from um, war. She marched her armies south to Nubia and Kush in a successful military campaign. She made even a bigger splash by organizing a successful trading expedition to a semi-mythical land of Pont, which is modern-day Eritrea, and she won her people's respect for that. As you can imagine, you know, this is a semi-mythical land, just like for us, space is semi-mythical. And this was probably an, an equivalent of her launching a rocket to Mars in, in her people's eyes. So eventually she did introduce the image of her nephew around year 16 into her rule. Um, and she depicted herself along with uh, Tutmos III. But even then, Tutmos always followed behind Hatshepsut. So Hatshepsut has eventually passed away. This left uh, Tutmos to finally assume 
complete power. She was buried with all uh, befitting kingly honors in the Valley of the King. He could not publicly lash out at his aunt um, because, after all, she was ordered by Gadamun to take power. Uh, and instead, uh, he took his anger out on her daughter. I can't imagine, you know, he was too happy having to share power with his aunt, even into his adulthood, especially in a society that expected men to rule. Neferu's position as the high priestess was transferred to one of his royal sisters or daughters. It's not um, known exactly the relation. And he immediately began a campaign of her erasure. He had also skipped over a more ro- uh, more royal offspring in favor of lesser wife's son to make sure a female does not wield influence. Years later, he became erasing his aunt's accomplishments as well, often reassigning them to his father or his grandfather. About 25 years into his sole reign, with his successor, Amenemhotep II secured, the campaign of erasure got really aggressive. He smashed the, the statues of his co-ruler and chiseled away reliefs. It is hard to summarize um, just how successful her kinship was um, precisely because her accomplishments were assigned to other men who came after her or before her. Even post-death, his son and grandson after her made efforts to diminish female influence by uh, not giving royal females the title of Amun's wife, instead placing their own mothers and non-royal wives which placed those women under their direct control. So even though Hatshepsut was an extremely successful uh, queen, you know, she enriched Egypt, she had successful military campaigns, she went on this expedition that opened up trading routes uh, for more goods to flow into Egypt. She had a very strategic mind because male rulers were not expected to perform this balancing act of pleasing everyone around her to maintain power. As we can see, she was able to, to hold on to that power and be very successful at it. She was punished, um, basically, for, for, for being a successful uh, female ruler by an angry man who was in this um, patriarchal mindset that that he should rule, he should hold power just on the sole faction that he is a man. And he went on the campaign not only to erase a chap suit, but to make sure he kept women down generations to come, including Hatshepsut's daughter Neferur, who she clearly set up for a position of power and influence. That is sadly how the story ends, and it's nothing new to see female accomplishments being assigned to men. Again, sadly, this is nothing new. We will see an 18th dynasty woman rise up and become king, which shows uh, women's resilience, and no matter how the efforts of them being suppressed, uh, there were still women who managed to acquire and hold power. This woman would be Nefertiti. I think her and Cleopatra would be the two most well-known Egyptian women. Unfortunately, it's not for their achievements, but it's more for their looks. 
Nefertiti is obviously very famous for for her bust, which is now in the Berlin's Egypt um, Museum, I believe. That is how I first came to know her as a kid. Yeah, later on, I was very surprised to discover that she was also a very powerful pharaoh. So let's move on to Nefertiti. And it's becoming very hot in my closet, by the way. Well, because I closed the doors to keep the noise out, and currently there is no air conditioning coming in. Yeah, I am starting to sweat. <laughs> so let's get through this. So as I said, Nefertiti is an 18th dynasty queen and later pharaoh, well known for her limestone bust, uh, now stored in Berlin's Egyptian Museum, and it depicts a very beautiful symmetrical face of a queen. What most people did not know is that she lived through um, unprecedented and tumultuous times, served as king, and attempted to repair the damage caused by her husband. Um, she was born during the 40-year reign of Amenhotep III. It was a kingship characterized by security and wealth. His great royal life, Tai, had borne him two sons, Tutmos and Amenhotep. Uh, with Tutmos um, being chosen to take over the throne. During his lifetime, Amenhotep III was interested in theology and temple construction. King Amenhotep also launched successful military campaigns in Nubia, Kush, Levant, and Syria. He successfully traded with the Canaanite coastal cities Lebanon and the Delta coast. Eventually, Amenhotep III grew old and fat, which was um, evidenced by his mommy, no doubt from all the excess he has experienced. So yeah, so Amenhotep III is uh, fat and old, and all his hopes are resting on the crown prince Tutmos, who uh, passed away unexpectedly from an undentified cause, which uh, thrust his other son Amenhotep IV in a position of being king. And not much is known about Amenhotep IV, just because, you know, he was not the crown prince and no one cared to write down any details about his life, but it is possible he was being groomed to take on a high-ranking priestly role. He was around 30 when he became king, so he was an adult with uh, well-formed ideas, and uh, he came to rule during a time of great security from invasions and great wealth. Nefertiti would have also been born into this atmosphere of wealth. She was born to an influential family in the royal court, but her parentage is not recorded. There is no evidence connecting her to a royal bloodline. However, she was given a tutor and a wet nurse, um, highly unusual. It was an honor usually reserved for royalty. What you have to understand about Amenhotep IV coming into his kingship is that Egyptian culture was already thousands of years old when he became the leader, and he would have been expected to uphold the traditions and the universal order of things, especially as the pharaoh, to make sure that the Nile floods and the sun comes out. Uh, later on, we would see that he did exactly the opposite. 
Into year four of his reign, he married Nefertiti, giving her the title of his great royal wife. And at the time, she was a young teenage girl. She was likely was being prepared for this role since birth, which would explain um, the honors um, that were given to her as an infant. Uh, so in a traditional patriarchal sense, her queenship uh, was being viewed as successful. She was... Uh, unquestioning of her husband and she was also able to reproduce which is a big deal as you can imagine since infertility was a big threat to the royal line you know so fairly traditional but there would be nothing traditional about her ascent to power or the times that she lived through so i hope you're excited to find out amenhotep the fourth was keenly interested in theology and he had radical new ideas which he would force upon the traditional society and whether Nefertiti liked it or not she would become her husband's chief priestess and inspiration for this radicalism so another unusual thing is that there are images of the royal couple kissing and holding hands and even her sitting in the king's lap so it's very playful and it is possible that Nefertiti was meant to represent the female aspect of divine creation, with the royal bed being the place where divine creation took place. And after just a few years of marriage, she would have taken place in a shocking jubilee celebration, not for the king, but for a little-known sun god Aten. So once again, you have to remember, Egypt is a very traditional society. Um, they expect their king to behave in a similar manner. Their religion and their traditions are well established. And here comes this celebration, which signaled the beginning of new changes to take place. So prior to the celebration, Manhotep has built an unusual new temple he unveiled to the people at the celebration. This was a perpendicular structure supposedly communicated to the king directly from Aten. Um, even the king's image, it was unusual and alien-like in appearance. And this does not, does not match his mommy, which did not show any physical deformities. So clearly the image was warped um, on purpose to communicate something. And one of the arguments for this strange appearance is that he tried to channel the ultimate creation, both male and female, human and animalistic. And Nefertiti was also depicted in the same strange way. So this bizarre celebration continued as the confused and no doubt very sweaty <laughs> elites um, spent all day participating in rituals and bringing offerings. Uh, and um, this is funny because only the royals were allowed to, to be shaded, but you can imagine these probably tabby elites just sweating it out in the sun, just like I am locked in this closet. <laughs> so Nefertiti was needed in this new religion to represent a feminine aspect of, of the religion. She even got her own temple called the Sunshade of Aten, <coughs> excuse me, where she is depicted without her husband. The king was viewed as God's earthly representative. 
and the chief priest of Egypt. So it was believed without him, gods would abandon Egypt. And you can imagine just how anxious people got when their king all of a sudden abandoned his religious duties in favor of this new unheard god. And Amenhotep did receive pushback against his religious reforms. So the text is not direct, since anti-royal sentiment would not have been written down. But there is a vague mention of King's reaction to bad words. We're assuming those bad words were directed at his new religion. And it is most likely due to the cold reception of his new ideas that the king decided to create a new capital city in the middle of Egypt. His new capital was to be called Akhetanen, the horizon of the Aten. Well, that's what it meant, the horizon of the Aten. And surprisingly to me, and I'm sure to everyone, is that there is no attempts to assassinate him. I mean, he was heretical in his beliefs. But yeah, he was he was uh, allowed to continue to develop his ideas further. And uh, the lashing out against his ideas would only come after Amenhotep's death. But yeah, b- back to to his revolution. In another unprecedented move, the king decided to undergo a name change from Amenhotep, which meant Amun is at peace, to Akhenaten, which meant the one who is beneficial to attend. And just a word of warning, um, there is going to be a lot of name changes from now on, and it's going to be very confusing. I mean, it's hard enough to already keep track of all these royal names, and it does not make it much easier when they decide to change their name like almost every other day. So I will try my best to make it as straightforward as possible. So na- so from now on, Amenhotep is Ankenaten. And uh, for the sake of making it less confusing, I am just going to refer to him as King or maybe King A or just Pharaoh. To add to the confusion, Nefertiti also got her name amended, and it would be Neferneferuaten Nefertiti, which is just a handful to pronounce, Neferneferuaten Nefertiti, meaning the beauty of the beautiful ones of the Aten, the beauty has come. I mean, that is a full-on sentence, not a name. So all these unprecedented changes created a lot of chaos within the traditional long-established structures. On top of the uh, unrest, building the new capital was a tremendous strain on the people. And there are um, graveyards of laborers that proved just how difficult um, this was. Those laborers were malnourished. They undergone harsh treatment and were overworked. So forensic analysis showed severe repetitive stress injuries linked to the demand to build the city in a short time. The workers were often too young and they were even working while wounded. So skilled craftsmen would have fared better since their specialized skills would have been rewarded, but uh, kind of the common average worker really fared poorly. Many old temples, as a result, were shut down to divert funds to Kenya, funds that were needed to bribe the elites uh, to move to a new city and embrace this new religion. 
and the elites gained significant wealth through this move since they had to be bribed. In the new city, the royal family would take center stage. Everything revolved around their worship, not the old gods, um, as it was common. So the king and the queen, for example, would ride in a gold chariot in a sacred procession across the city representing God Aten. So besides people probably being thrust into fear that they will be punished by the gods, the move has actually strengthened Nefertiti's political standing. The king prominently displayed her next to him everywhere. He knew that Nefertiti's power was dependent on him, and he would have trusted her just because without him, she would not be in the position that she was. So it was in her interest to support the king. Kenya's willingness to elevate his royal wife's power could have been based on the fact that he grew up seeing his mother, the great royal wife Tai, wield an unusually great influence. He perhaps even recognized the value of sharing the burden of power, just like his father did um, with his mother. Tai's name often appeared on official acts, and she has also been portrayed as the same height with the pharaohs, symbolizing their equality. So who knows, perhaps, as I said, he was um, inspired by his powerful mother to promote his wife. Despite Nefertiti's prominent place, King A still had a harem, and there was another woman named Kia, um, that received an unprecedented title of greatly beloved wife. So whatever relationship he had with Nefertiti, was it based on love or was it based um, on the fact that he needed her to figure in his religion? Or perhaps he recognized that uh, that she's well-educated and she's suitable to wield power. He had other love interests, This woman named Kia would also wield economic power in the form of ownership of vineyards and agricultural estates. But shortly after her name disappeared, just as suddenly it appeared, and it was purposely destroyed to be replaced with Nefertiti's eldest daughter, Mary Tanen. Perhaps Nefertiti's power was threatened by the fact that Kia was allowed to raise to prominence, and perhaps she, uh, Nefertiti was the one who engineered her downfall. Another sucky part about patriarchal power structures, it often um, doesn't allow for women um, to gain power and to, to uplift other women just because you're viewed as an exception. And this doesn't allow you to to share power. There is only very little room for few women to rise, and patriarchy creates this false narrative of by uplifting other women, you diminish your own power, which could not be further from the truth, but it it is a very old and deeply ingrained idea. So just as um, Kia suddenly disappeared, Nefertiti's mention as the great royal life uh, Sorry, the great royal wife also suddenly disappeared. Her daughter, Merita Ten, give me a minute to pronounce this, Ankesenpaten. So her daughter, Merita Ten, and Ankesenpaten took the title from her to become the great royal wives um, to their father, uh, which, again, disgusting. 
eventually the the practice of incest did fall out of fashion slightly. Let's not dwell on this grossness. Nefertiti's title disappeared, but this did not mean that she disappeared from history. Instead, she became a co-king to rule alongside her husband. Twelve years into King A's rule, the previously renamed Neferneferuaten Nefertiti would once again change her name. So Neferneferuaten Nefertiti would drop the name of Nefertiti and assume the name of Ankekeperur, which meant manifestations of Ra are alive. Her full name would read Ankekeperur Neferneferuaten, which is a handful to pronounce. And for the sake of making this sound less confusing, I will still refer to her as Nefertiti, but just keep in mind that name actually disappeared from record and she was Ankekeperur Neferneferuaten. So one of her husband's tombs features a relief of a a melded pair of two kings sharing the same space on the throne and this possibly is depicting Nefertiti's rise to power. A stella in a Petrie museum in London uh, shows a cartouche of King A and Nefertiti as queen, which later Nefertiti's cartouche uh, was uh, very obviously modified to reflect her new status as a co-king. So as I mentioned, the name changes get even more confusing that King A would constantly change uh, his own epitaphs uh, in attempts to communicate the piety of his own beliefs so I imagine he was quite insecure in how people perceived him and he probably tried to change his names to give himself a more positive image and he would need that because just as he sent out agents to chisel away the names of the old gods, and particularly Amun and Mut, or Mat, I believe, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, uh, but they were gods worshipped in Thebes in particular. So just as he did that, the kingship suffered a military loss in northern Syria. And on top of that, a natural phenomenon would occur that would re- reflect very poorly on A4. On May 14th, 1338 BC, a full solar eclipse was visible in the Nile Valley, which you can imagine just the sheer spectacle of a solar eclipse to people who had no modern knowledge of what an eclipse is. And this eclipse takes place every 375 years. So this would have not been a part of a collective group cultural memory. So for 48 seconds, the land was plunged into darkness. No doubt was interpreted as a sign of divine wrath. Must be a harrowing experience. As I said, for people who have no idea what the eclipse actually is, um, whose religion is centered around the sun, all of the sudden to be plunged into this darkness, I would have panicked as well. On this um, apocalyptic note, King A, uh, now named Akhenaten, passed away um, 17 years into his reign. Nefertiti was in her mid-twenties to early thirties at the time of his passing. She would have been trusted to continue the king's religious reform, which is why he most likely uh, placed her as the co-ruler. He trusted her to continue 
with what he started, but um, instead she wisely chose to repair the past damage. In, in order to distance herself from her husband, uh, she would have to remake herself as a, a brand new king. <clears throat> so it's time for another confusing name change. Okay, how do I explain? Okay, so um, she went from Nefertiti to Nefertiti, uh, later becoming co-king, um, she took on the name of Ankekeperur Neferneferuotin. So right now she will drop the Neferneferuotin part of the Ankekeperun Neferneferuotin to become Ankekeperur Smenkar, which means the soul of rare is restored. So by this name, she was signaling she's ready to, to do some restoration work, to restore the old gods, basically. And, and there is a lot of debate if the name belonged to a male relative who stepped in to take the throne or Nefertiti. To me, it makes sense that she kept a part of her previous name and assumed the other one to communicate um, her intent in, types, uh, in times of crisis. And we're going to follow this theory further. So the main argument against the theory that Ankekeperur is not Nefertiti. This person had royal wives. Uh, the same royal wives that the previous king married incestuously. And such relationship could not be consummated in a patriarchal understanding where they would not be able to produce kids if a woman married other women. But a, a tomb image so shows Smenkakar with the great royal wife Maritanen. In the image, Smenkakar is shown to be wearing a masculine kilt over a feminine garment, uh, just as queens have done beforehand. So perhaps Mary Tannen simply retained the title as a royal wife. In Nefertiti's um, efforts to award her daughter power, so it's not too far-fetched to assume that Nefertiti just assumed a different kingly title, but kept her daughter's title as royal wife. So at the time, Egypt was bankrupt uh, due to too much spending on new buildings and the fact that an entire capital was built at great speeds. The needs of the empire were neglected just because Kenya, all he could fo focus on is his religious reform. And Nefertiti's first move as king was to abandon the new capital. And in efforts to repair the scars um, caused by her husband's actions, she sent artisans to repair and erase temple inscriptions to the new god and started building statues to old gods. So she's sending a clear message. She's going back to the old ways by abandoning the new capital. She took efforts in securing the continuity of the royal line. And now another famous Egyptian name comes in, Tutankhamen, was chosen as the next in line, and he was most likely Nefertiti's grandson. The genetic analysis of his mommy reveals he was a product of incest, and since Nefertiti and her husband were not related, he couldn't have been 
her son, her deceased husband was married to his daughters, so most likely one of the daughters produced Tutankhamen. She would have expected her daughter, um, Ankesepaten, which her name again <laughs> was changed to Ankesamun, to marry her brother, the boy king, and through that role to rule as regent. After Nefertiti's passing, Tutankhamen's brief reign began, and we all know he did not live long. His claim to fame is basically the fact that his tomb is nearly preserved, and um, I find this very ironic because it is preserved because of efforts to erase his name and his family's name from history. Um, so by erasing his name so completely, grave robbers were not even aware that this boy King Tutankhamun existed, which in turn made him famous, kind of backfired and made him famous because his tomb was so preserved. Tutankhamun's brief reign was not marked with anything exceptional. What was happening behind the scenes is that his great royal wife, Ankesamun, was feuding with a trusted statesman named Ai over who would uh, act as regent. So Ai was greatly trusted by Queen and later Pharaoh Nefertiti, because he shown her a lot of support, but he actually betrayed the royal family and he did not support Ankesamun as regent, as was intended by Nefertiti, creating a conflict between the two. So Ankesamun recognized Ai's betrayal, and after Tut's death, she wrote a letter to a Hittite king asking for him to send a royal son for her to marry. So in the letter, she refers to Ai as her servant which uh, was an effort for her to diminish Ai's claim to the throne. Unfortunately, the prince that was sent by the Hittite king uh, did not make it, and um, Ankesamun was forced to become Ai's uh, royal wife. Once Tutankhamun passed, Ai made a very speedy move to assume uh, authority, and Tutankhamun was given a very hasty burial. Most of the objects of from his tomb were reinscribed and they were originally meant to use by a female. Uh, most likely uh, they were Nefertiti's um, burial objects. And Kesanamun was forced to become the great royal wife of Ai. I mean, it was not unknown previously for women to close out a dynasty, but this was most likely because due to her father's radicalism, she lacked um, popular support among the elites, and uh, sadly what followed was pushback against female power during the 19th and 20th dynasties, so we see this over and over again. Once a woman comes to power, what follows is a period of decline for female queenship or for female rule. Discovering Nefertiti in general, even her entire family's history, has been a very difficult job. Nefertiti and her husband were removed from most king lists as heretics, and her tomb has not yet been found. And another reason for all this debate on whether or not she continued as king post her husband's death, which I um, think she has, because it makes sense, like her, the continuation of her name change makes a lot of sense to me, and the fact that she would have 
wanted to pass on the power to her direct descendants, which would be her daughters. Like, to me, it makes sense that that she did continue as king just as her husband intended her to do. But what makes it even more difficult to prove is the fact that this particular king was so hated and by an extension his family was that every effort was made to erase any trace of them. Perhaps we will know more once her tomb is found. I would love to be alive during this time if it ever is found. But uh, regardless of that, she faced um, an enormous challenge during her lifetime. Her, her husband, being a male, didn't have to contest with the delicacies of power like a female would. He didn't have to navigate power like a woman. He could implement this new religion with a sledgehammer and force people to follow it. A woman could never do that. And this left Nefertiti with an empire that was neglected, and she knew what she had to do was to reconstruct and revitalize her country, but at the same time as a woman with a connection to her husband, which made it incredibly difficult, trying to rebuild burnt bridges and men relationships. There is not much known about her reign other than the fact that she would have been faced with a challenge that she took on and evidence does suggest she tried her best to repair what her husband has broken. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please, please tell a friend. I would greatly appreciate it. And I will see you next time for part three, or rather speak to you next time for the part three of uh, Queens of Egypt, which which will conclude uh, this series, and I will move on to a different topic. Um, Oh, and one of the most important things I forgot to mention, my source was Cara Cooney's book, When Women Ruled the World, Six Queens of Egypt. So yeah, thank you for listening again, and I hope you have a great day and a great uh, week. Bye!